welcome to our fourth episode. I am grateful, I am appreciative to y'all for accompanying me this far, and I hope that y'all continue to do so. As a first recap of episode three, then we will begin with a short prayer, and then we will move to uh, our present material for this episode. A recap we looked at last episode, the Mass in its origins as far as the name, as well as its importance in terms of sacrifice itself, and most specifically, the most perfect sacrifice, which is Christ's. So the Mass we talked about possibly comes from the term ite misa est, misa being the key word in that phrase, uh, meaning sent out. And therefore, when we think of the Mass, we should always think in terms of we are sent out by Christ, having received his most precious body and blood, but we should also uh, think of the fact that we send to God the Father this most precious and perfect sacrifice. That again, liturgy is Christ's action in and with and united to the church. And so it's the church acting in union with Christ towards the Father. And so we must understand the importance of just this word, Mass, before I think we can really understand the true significance of what it is that we are doing when we go to and participate in the Holy Mass. We also spoke about the possibility of this word simply being a type of secretive code. Misa, I'm going to Misa, rather than saying I'm going to worship uh, in an illegal way, and then other people obviously would then tell the authorities and you would be handcuffed and then thrown into the Colosseum or tortured and put to death in some way or another. And so for Christians that were obviously tortured and persecuted for so many years, they probably did have some kind of code words that would help them worship without being persecuted or caught. Secondly, we spoke about how Christ is uh, the one who institutes the Mass. So why do we celebrate the Holy Mass? And the reason is because of Christ's sacrifice on the cross and because of His words, His command. Do this in remembrance of me. Remembrance of me being the key word that Christ is the one who instituted the Mass and he is the one that mandated that the apostles continue on what they have received from him. So when people might ask you, why do Catholics always do the same thing? Why don't they have communion only every other week? Or why don't they read more about scripture here? Why can't they have more praise and worship? Why can't over and over again, your answer should be always, because this is how God has told us to worship. We continuously seek to worship him according to his desires, not ours, not our will, but his be done. These are the words of Christ. This is what the Our Father is a prayer for. This is also the words of the Blessed Virgin, and it should be on our lips often. Christ is the reason why we worship, because he's the one that mandated it. He's the one that gave it to us, and we should be most grateful to do so. Then to what end do we sacrifice? The Mass is towards the end of worship, thanksgiving, of petition, and of reparation. And so we need uh, this, these, these four purposed intention to bring with us every time that we participate in the Mass. Because in essence, this is what the church is offering for, for the people, liturgy, for the people. But it is done as the most perfect worship, as the most perfect act of thanksgiving, as the most perfect petition, as the most perfect act of reparation, why? Because it is presenting Christ crucified once again there on that altar. Then we move to where? A most suitable place. 
Remember, we spoke about all of these questions, to what end, why, who, where, how, in terms of sacrifice in general, and then how they're fulfilled in the most perfect, sublime sacrifice, which is of Christ. And now, then, oh, in the last episode, we spoke about how all of that applies to every Mass. Because what was offered 2,000 years ago in a bloodied way to God the Father for the sake of the salvation of souls, now at every Mass, those merits are applied to us by presenting again there at that Mass in an unbloodied way this most holy victim. And it is Christ who works in the priest. So where? On the altar. Just like Christ's altar was the cross, now the altar at Mass becomes the new cross. Then who? Jesus is the eternal high priest. He is the one who offers. He offered himself 2,000 years ago in a perfect way as a sacrifice, the Lamb of God. But now, in heaven, on his throne, he continues to offer himself as a gift, not a bloodied sacrifice, but as a gift glorified in all of his sublimity to God the Father. But he also offers sacrifice through the priest at every Mass. So he continues to offer as sacrifice on earth, he continues to offer as gift himself, as the mediator, the one true mediator, the eternal high priest between us and God, uh, himself on his throne to the Father. How? Obedience, 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 always back to obedience. This is how we worship. Why do we do this? Because Christ says, do this in memory of me. He does not say, do what you will, do whatever you would like, do this in memory of me. To begin this episode, I want to speak on how the Mass is, in a sense, a fulfillment of what we see in both the Old Testament and the New Testament. The sacred scriptures are absolutely essential. We've always understood this as Catholics. We've always been those who have taken and appreciated and studied profoundly and greatly the scriptures because we understand them to reveal to us who God is. If we do not know who God is, then how can we love God? How can you love what you do not know, who you do not know? And so we love God. How? But the more that we know him, the easier it becomes for us to do so. Therefore, the scriptures help us to know God. This should be something that we desire, something that we should seek on our own. We should read sacred scripture. We should study sacred scripture because it's so easy for us to be uh, misunderstanding words that we find or sentences or prophecies or whatnot that we find in sacred scripture if we're not reading them in accordance with the church. So the Old Testament, we see, in a sense, a great part of the history of salvation that takes place before Christ. We see a great preparation for the coming of Christ. When you think of sacred, sacred scripture, you should, think of, uh, you, could, you should think of it in terms of what comes before and what comes after Christ. In other words, he is the pinnacle. He's the capstone that holds it all together. And so in the Old Testament, we see from the very beginning things that are leading up to the life of Christ. First of all, the easiest examples, we see the prophecies that speak about the coming of the Messiah, which is the salvation of the people. But even before that, we see all the way back to Adam, that he was in this garden and that he said, my will, not yours be done, that he committed this great sin. He plucked from a tree that he should not have. And then we see with the life of Christ, he, the new Adam, who says, thy will be done in a garden and then is arrested and brought to another tree, a tree of death. But that tree of death then sprouts life because it is fed by the most precious blood of Jesus, which pours from his wounds 
And this is our salvation. And so Christ offers us a new tree of life. Instead of choosing the tree of knowledge of good and evil, choosing his own will, like Adam does, he chooses the tree of life. He, in fact, he makes the tree of life from his own blood. And so, as I said, we see in the Old Testament everything pointing to Christ, either very clearly or analogously uh, through prefigurements and other ways, other events, etc., that point to the life of Christ, such a profound realization when we understand that by reading the Old Testament, we can come to understand the actions and the words of Christ more clearly. And by reading and understanding the words and actions of Christ, we can then better understand what is occurring in the Old Testament and why so many of these events are recorded and put in this most precious book. The sacred scriptures are infallible. They are inerrant. They should be read and appreciated. They are God's gift to us. They are a love letter in essence that we might know him better. And so we should. But we cannot understand them if we don't look at them through the lens of Jesus Christ, who is the whole entire point of the scriptures. So, as I said, everything from the Old Testament leads up to Christ, but everything after him. After the, the, the Old Testament is ended and the New Testament begins, we have four Gospels, then we have the Acts of the Apostles and various letters, and we have Revelation, the book of the Apocalypse. This is important because four, four Gospels speak of the life of Christ. So we have four books centered exactly on his life, and then we move from there into letters that help to explain and apply the works of Christ, the life of Christ, the words of Christ, the teachings of Christ to various churches like Ephesus, like Romans, etc., and then to our own lives as well, even 2,000 years later, where we find that these words are still not exhausted in their meaning, but still are applicable to us today in so many ways. Therefore, both Old Testament and New Testament put together help us to better recognize the true, epic, necessary, and absolutely awe-inspiring action and event of Christ's coming. Everything points to Christ. Everything is fulfilled in Christ. This is exactly the way in which we should see our own lives. This is exactly, in a sense, the way that we should see Mass, you see, because Christ is the fulfillment of the Old Testament and everything in the New Testament points back to him to help him to be applied and put into the souls and lives of other people. In that same way, the sacred mass finds its culmination in the Eucharist, where Christ there is made present on the altar for us. And so we should look forward to that every day. The moment we leave that church, ideally, we're looking forward to the next time we get to go to mass so that we can then see this entire work of salvation history in some ways spelled out for us at the mass. So let's continue to dive in and see how that perhaps is somewhat of a reality. The Word becomes flesh. This is written in John chapter 1. Most notable, most important words for us. And this, again, occurs in one of the Gospels. And so, the Word becomes flesh. The Word was with God, the Word was God, and then the Word eventually becomes flesh. In the Mass, the Old Testament and the New Testament both find their fulfillment in the person of Jesus Christ made present on the altar. Why is this? Because these words, as I said, these sacred words of both Old Testament and New Testament find their fulfillment in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. In the Mass, we go through these words. 
in the very first half called the Liturgy of the Word, or the Mass of the Catechumens, as it was called. This is uh, where we are being fed at the ambo, being fed uh, from, from the sacred scriptures. And then a priest will then open them up and break them out in ways that are edible to us so that we can better understand what they mean and how they apply to our own lives, how they apply to truth in general and where we're at in history this day, in salvation history, etc. And so we have Old Testament, we have New Testament, all of this we are fed so that we can know God more. But then how do we truly come to know God? Through communing with Him in the Most Holy Eucharist. And so we find the pinnacle of Mass, uh, of, of the Scriptures, is Jesus becoming flesh. Then we find that in the Mass, the pinnacle of the Mass, is Jesus becoming flesh. Although we learn about Him, who He is, His sacred truths passed on through sacred Scripture at the first half, then we go to put those into flesh the second half. Likewise, in the Old Testament, all of this build up who Christ is. All of these events of the Old Testament, some of which we will go through shortly, all point to Christ who then becomes flesh. The Messiah is here. The prophecies are answered. And then the rest of Scripture is simply about how we make that body of Christ, that love, the God who has incarnated himself into human history, into our own lives, how we apply him and make him ours, how we follow him and unite our wills perfectly and entirely to his, how we give him everything as he so clearly has given us so much. The Mass is the authentic and ever new living of the Holy Scriptures, living out of the Holy Scriptures. In the Mass, we have everything that the Old Testament pointed to, that is, Jesus, and everything that the New Testament explains, the life, the death, the resurrection, and the ascension of Jesus, all of that in the Mass, we are united to St. Peter and St. Paul in their proclamation of the Gospel. We put on the armor of God. We receive faith, hope, and charity. We participate in the breaking of bread with the apostles. We are witnesses with the martyrs. We are the church united in spirit and truth, John 4.23. We are the body of Christ, so called by St. Paul and the white-robed army spoken of in Revelation. We are the continual incarnation of Christ by being his hands and feet in this world. How? We receive his body, his blood, his soul, and divinity. In other words, what we see in sacred scripture written down, everything that's prepared for is the coming of Christ, is the death of Christ, is the salvation of humanity. This occurs in the mass because if we are presenting, again, the sacrifice of Christ, then when that priest is there bending over the altar, looking at that piece of bread that is in his hands, and he says those words and he commands by the holy orders and the grace that has been given to him. He commands that bread to cease being bread to there become transubstantiation, as it's called, a new substance, the substance of the body, the blood, the soul, and the divinity of Jesus. In that moment, is that not an incarnation? Is that not Christ in the flesh? Of course, that is the Eucharist, Christ's body, his flesh, his blood, his soul, his divinity. And so his sacrifice is presented to the, to, to the Father in an unbloodied way. Well, where do we read about that? In the sacred scripture. But we also read about that all throughout the Old Testament in the sense that they're constantly speaking about the suffering servant in Isaiah, about uh, Isaac taking this sacrifice, this, this, this altar, and carrying it up this mountain to which he was to be sacrificed by his own father. And then we see Jesus carrying his wood, his altar, up, across, uh, uh, up Mount Calvary and to be sacrificed by the will of the Father. 
See, everything in the Old Testament is pointing to Christ, and Christ is the one that points us to the Mass. Why? Because we participate in all of Scripture. We live out sacred Scripture in the Mass. What we have there present on the altar is Christ, and He is the fulfillment of the Scriptures. Therefore, yes, we live out the same way. What St. Paul and St. Peter witnessed in seeing the body of Christ, yes, we see it in a different form. We see it in the Eucharistic sacramental form. But regardless, we commune on that body and the blood of Christ. We are in unity, an intimate communion with Jesus, like they were in intimate community with Jesus. As Peter sat around his table, as Peter was in the boat with him, and as Paul, of course, uh, followed him after, obviously, his death and resurrection and ascension, but followed him so greatly in all of his different works uh, and, and travels in order to spread the Holy Gospel. So, we have so much, once again, in the Mass to understand that we are there with the saints and the angels, that we are there glorifying God, that we are there in the fulfillment of the sacred scriptures, consuming the very fulfillment of the sacred scriptures. That Messiah that was spoken about for thousands of years to prepare the Jewish people for what was coming, he comes on our altar. He's here with us. Cherish him. Love him. Pay attention to the best that you can in Mass so that you can be more prepared to receive him with an open heart and a humble and contrite heart. As I said, the Mass has uh, two major parts. One I've already explained, the Liturgy of the Word, which is the beginning or the Mass of the Catechumens. The second is the Liturgy of the Eucharist. And so, as I said, we are fed at the ambo, and then we are fed at the altar. And these both come together in this one holy and sacred worship. What we also see in the Old uh, Testament scriptures is we see two places of worship. And in fact, we see this in the New Testament scriptures as well. It is the synagogue, which is the place of learning, the place of scripture reading, the place, the place of the prophets to be read, and uh, certainly the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Old Testament and other things. And then we see the place of the temple, where the priests are sacrificing the animals for the sake of worship and petition, uh, reparation and thanksgiving for the sake of the people. And we see both of these come together at the Mass. No longer are these two separate forms of worship in two separate places, but rather, yes, there is a sacrifice, an ultimate sacrifice. It's not a new sacrifice. It's not another sacrifice. It's the presentation of the one everlasting sacrifice of the true Lamb of God by the one eternal High Priest. And then that is united to the scriptures that we receive from the Ambo. And so we have both of these coming together in one Mass, in every Mass. Let us now look at some of the Old Testament ways in which already the Mass in some way or another, certainly the Eucharist, certainly uh, Christ himself, but certainly parts of our worship are already being pointed to in the Old Testament. Firstly, the tree of life in the garden. I've already hit on this some, so this won't be uh, very new, but it is important to look at the tree of good and evil, or knowledge of good and evil, and the tree of life. And you see these two different trees, and Adam and Eve obviously take from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which was forbidden, instead of the tree of life, which would, in theory, have given them more graces, perhaps, or more life, uh, in, in spiritual life, or communion with God in some way or another. And then they are, uh, from their sin, cast out of this garden, and the relationship between God and man is broken until we receive the God-man, one divine person, two natures, human and divine, perfectly united in him, who become the bridge by which we are once again able to be in union with God the Father 
And so, he dies on a tree. He becomes the fruit, in essence, of a tree, but not of knowledge of good and evil. That clearly is already shown because it is evil that is breaking and tearing and ripping apart his body. It's the tree of life that he gives us because eternal life is found in consuming his body and blood. In fact, he says this over and over and over again in the Bread of Life Discourse, John chapter 6. See for yourself and nowhere else in Scripture will you find on any other theme does Christ hammer in with such consistency and repetition the same teaching. If you do not eat my, blood, eat my body and drink my blood, you do not have life within you. Over and over again, the necessity of receiving the Most Holy Eucharist, over and over again, him emphasizing the truth that this is my flesh and my blood. Not a symbol, not a sign, not consubstantiation, but transubstantiation. Meaning, it is not that we believe that with that piece of bread, God's presence is, is there, but we believe that that bread ceases to be bread, still looks, still tastes, still feels like bread. But in reality, it is the body, the blood, the soul, and divinity, the very substance of that bread is no longer there. It is now the body, the blood, the soul and divinity of Christ. That is our belief, and therefore we profess that uh, proudly, because it is the belief that has been passed down from Christ himself. So we have a new tree of life. Already from the book of Genesis, uh, we have this prefigurement of the Eucharist and the death of Christ himself. Then we also have the figure of Melchizedek. He is the king of Salem, which then origin, uh, which later becomes Jerusalem. Salem, uh, I believe, meaning peace, which is also noteworthy in terms of uh, being a prefigurement of Christ, who obviously is the only source of peace, the prince of peace. And Melchizedek is a priest and a king of Salem. He offers bread and wine. He has an encounter with Abraham, in other words, kind of the head of God's people. And it's interesting that Melchizedek in some ways kind of comes out of nowhere and he goes away without any description. We don't see his death. We don't see his birth. We don't see where he comes from. He's this mysterious figure that clearly has a profound uh, power and union with God because Abraham respects him greatly and in fact even gives him 10% of what he has, which is a rather significant amount at that point. And so Melchizedek, because he has no beginning and no end, he represents God. In fact, uh, we even hear about this in uh, the, 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 the priesthood of Melchizedek, that Christ is a priest after the line of Melchizedek, after this kind of no beginning, no end line. He is the eternal high priest. Jesus is. Isaac, another figure of the Old Testament who represents Christ. Also, I mentioned this a little bit, that he is this young son, legitimate, from Abraham, and Abraham is commanded to offer his son, as a sacrifice to God. Abraham and his profound trust and faith in God who will fulfill the promises that Abraham has already received from God is willing to take his only legitimate son and to sacrifice him, even though those promises include that he would have descendants as numerous as the stars of heaven. How is this possible if he takes his only legitimate son and puts him to death? But Abraham doesn't question Abraham. Obey, obedience, 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 even to the extent of killing his own son, which, of course, he does not have to do. The angel steadies his hand, and Isaac is not sacrificed. But that doesn't prevent Isaac from being the one who carries up the wood that is necessary for the altar, for the sacrifice, up this mountain. And as he says, hey, Dad, where's the lamb? What, who's going to be sacrificed? What, what, what's going on? Didn't you forget something? 
And Abraham says, God himself will provide. Well, God himself does provide. That is, Jesus Christ, God himself, uh, provides the true, everlasting, perfect Lamb of God. And so we see, again, everything pointing to Christ. And then from Christ comes the Mass. And so even in the Mass itself, everything, of course, points to Christ. We also see Jacob. Jacob is the son of Isaac and the father of twelve, which is also significant. Christ was uh, a man who chose twelve disciples, and Jacob has twelve sons. Jacob, by the petition of his mother, Rebekah, clothed himself, if you remember, in Esau's clothes and put on goatskin so that he would seem more like Esau. His father, Isaac, was blind at the time, and it was time for Isaac to pass on the blessing uh, to his son. And so Jacob clothes himself and makes him like uh, Esau in order to receive the blessing, to deceive his father, in other words. In fact, the name Jacob means jokester or deceiver, etc. At Mass, the priest is clothed in the person of Jesus Christ, the firstborn son of God. Not in any way do we try to deceive the father, of course, but that Jesus allows himself to be, uh, to, to, to be the clothes by which we are able then to uh, confect the Most Holy Eucharist, to offer uh, as a sacrifice, in the, uh, as an action of the Church, our Lord, which is a rather profound blessing, obviously. So at Mass, the priest is clothed in the person of Jesus Christ, the firstborn Son of God, and prepares not a meal, but a sacrifice for the Father, by the sacrifice, not of a goat, but of the true and perfect Lamb of God. This is done by the help and the request of Mary, the mother of priests. And why this is important is because Mary is the one that provides the humanity of Christ. By her, yes, Jesus is then, by the power of the Holy Spirit, conceived in the womb of Mary, takes on humanity, and receives human flesh from her. Rebecca, the mother of Jacob, the one who dresses himself in his brother's clothes, she's the one that provides the meal by which he is able to offer as a gift to his father Isaac. And so it seems that there's many overlays in the idea of what it means to be a priest of Jesus Christ, that we truly put on Christ for the sake of the liturgy, for the sake of the Mass, for the sake of the salvation of the people. Quote from Father Gurr, page 147, Let us also remember how highly favored we are, how enviable is our lot, since the well-beloved Son of the Eternal Father is and will forever remain our victim that we may not have to appear before God empty-handed. This also would have been bad for Jacob to be trying to deceive his father to come in for the blessing and be empty-handed, but rather he had to prepare a meal for his father. And this was done, obviously, as I said, by his mother. So in the same way, we don't come empty-handed only in our sinfulness to God the Father, but we come with the best gift, the most precious sacrifice, and that is Jesus. And so we do not come to, before God empty-handed, but, to continue the quote, may have a rich and worthy gift to offer him, and that in union therewith we may offer ourselves also, end quote. Our gift is the life and the death of Christ, only made possible by the virgin's fiat, that is, by the virgin saying, nevertheless, not my will be done, but yours. Your word be done in me, as she says in the, in, in the Gospel of Luke. Next figure, Joseph. If you remember, Joseph was one of Jacob's sons. He was sold into slavery by his brothers. He also was one of twelve. 
Why this is important is if you remember, one of the twelve betrayed Jesus Christ. So again, we see similarities within this life. We see figures that obviously point to the coming of Christ. So the Old Testament isn't speaking about Joseph for the sake of Joseph. It's not that we need to know who Joseph is. It's that we need to know who Joseph is who points to Christ so that we can better understand and know Christ. Everything, as I said, points to him. So Joseph is sold into slavery by his brothers, becomes exalted and empowered in Egypt, where he is put in charge of the empire of Egypt. He saves Egypt through interpreting a dream. He interprets a dream that then moves him, compels him to, because of the interpretation, to save grain for years because of a famine that was coming. And he knew all of this, that he would have many good and rich years and then he would have this famine. And so he saves grain. Why is grain important? Why is it important that he is the one that gives grain to all of the world? Because he, Egypt, the, the leader of Egypt at this point, he is the one that has saved and he is the one that then saves, in a sense, the world because he knew that there was going to be a famine. Well, likewise, Jesus is our food. Is grain not something from which bread is made? Was well, bread not that from which the body, the blood, the soul, and divinity, um, after the consecration, it, it becomes? And so in that same way, as Joseph gives this grain out to the world to feed the world, we are in a spiritual famine, and we need our Lord to feed us, and he feeds us himself his own body, blood, soul, and divinity. And so again, another layer, another pointing to uh, our, uh, our Mass, our Eucharist, our Savior. Moses. Moses demands the people of Israel be set free from their slavery to the Egyptians to be able to worship God. After nine plagues, God sends a tenth, the death of the firstborn male child and even animals. The angel of death would pass over the household of any who sacrificed and consumed a lamb and placed the lamb's blood on the doorposts of the home. Obviously, there's some ties here to the Eucharist. Because we see it was necessary for the families not only to sacrifice the lamb, not only to put the blood of the lamb on the doorposts, the top and the sides, but also to consume the flesh of the lamb. In fact, if they couldn't consume all of the flesh of the lamb, they needed to have another family with them so that nothing went to waste. So that the sacrifice was used, and that this sacrifice and this blood, it marked their family, their door, their home, as belonging to God. And therefore, because they fulfilled their part, they were spared. Their life was saved. They were freed from death. In the same way, do we not mark ourselves, our souls, with the blood of Christ as Christians? Do we not consume the flesh of the true Lamb of God? Do we not, as Catholics, save ourselves from death? Not earthly death, but eternal damnation. By consuming worthily and well, with an open and humble and contrite heart, the flesh of this Lamb. And so freedom from slavery was earned by this action, because after this most devastating tenth plague, Pharaoh relents and lets the people of God go, and they are freed from their slavery to Egypt. And as they go, uh, in the same way, we go from our slavery to sin. We are freed and liberated in countless different ways because of the Eucharist. We are liberated from our vices, our bad habits, our weaknesses that hold us down and chain us to Satan or chain us to different attachments of this world, like uh, electronics that we can't put down 
uh, other kinds of attachments like uh, music that we can, cannot stop listening to and these kinds of things, we must be able to overcome our attachments so that we can be liberated and freed to go to God. And a lot of these attachments come by way of receiving the graces that come from being uh, participants humbly and well in Mass. Moses prays to God on behalf of the complaining and starving Israelites. This is after their freedom. This is after they move across the Red Sea, after the, this, this Red Sea that was split in two washes away the Egyptian army. So after they are truly free, they then enter into the wilderness for 40 years, wandering around for the promised land. In other words, they're on this 40-year journey while an entire generation is wiped out uh, as, 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 in a sense, a punishment for all of their complaining and their disobedience. And so a new generation is what enters into the promised land. But at one point, as the people are complaining, after God has already spared them and saved them, after the ten plagues, after all of these marvels, after splitting an ocean in, or a sea in two so that they could walk on dry land across it, they can continue to complain. Just like we, after God continues to help us, after we have perhaps gone to confession so many times, used the graces of, of the sacred mass, received his body and his blood, still we doubt, still we fail, still we're weak, still we sin. And so like this, we can see a mirror image of our own weaknesses in the Egyptian, or excuse me, in the Israelites, uh, especially at the time of Moses and in their journey towards the promised land. Well, are we not in a journey towards the promised land? Is this not our 40 years of wandering? Do we not have to shed the old self? Does it not our sins have to die so that we can be made perfect by the power and grace of God and therefore be led in uh, to the narrow gates that lead into heaven? So Moses prays for food because they're complaining that they want food. They're complaining that even in Egypt we had better. How often do we, much like the different kinds of pleasures of our sins, of our past life, like Sarah, excuse me, not Sarah, like Lot's wife, who looks back when she was commanded not to as they're leaving Sodom and Gomorrah, and Sodom and Gomorrah is being destroyed from fire from heaven uh, because of their sin. And she looks back, and she's turned into a pillar of salt. Well, like us, we are not to turn back. Once we put our hand to the plow, once we have uh, moved on in our Christian way of life, that we should continue to move only forward, only uh, to a closer and relation, uh, perfect, more perfect relationship with God. And so Moses prays on behalf of the complaining people and God relents and he sends them food. He sends them this bread-like substance called manna on the desert. And they receive this manna every day. In the morning as they would wake up, there would be this dew-like substance that was like bread and they would go out and they would gather this manna. They would gather what they needed for that day. Not more, not less, but they would gather what they needed for that day. Well, too, as we say in uh, the Our Father, our daily bread. One of the translations for this is super substantial bread. Uh, if you look at one of the versions in one of the Gospels, the Greek word is more closely translated super substantial. In other words, we receive our daily Eucharist because God on our altars becomes present in body, blood, soul, and divinity. And so because of that, then we have our daily bread that enables us to have strength necessary to continue our journey towards the promised land to continue our journey towards perfection, towards a virtuous, good, and holy life. And so we continue to consume this Eucharist, understanding and having firm faith in truly what is offered in the Mass. So let us quickly recap for the end of this episode. Both in the Old Testament and the New Testament, we find that Christ is truly the prism, the, 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 the lenses 
by which we should read everything because he is the culmination. He is the word made flesh. Although we have this inerrant, infallible book written by human hand, inspired by God, for our sake to know God, what we see in these scriptures comes alive for us at Mass because what is the most significant events of, this, of these scriptures all points to the most significant events of all of the pages found in the life of Christ, his incarnation, his life, his death, his, crucifix, uh, his resurrection, and his ascension into heaven. And we see that at Mass where we relive the crucifixion in an unbloodied way of Christ there on that altar. And so obviously, because it is in an unbloodied way, it is because he is already resurrected. And we are only able to offer this in the way that we do because Christ has ascended and from heaven is offering himself and in the priest is offering the sacrifice. So all of this is put together in the Mass. All of these uh, events of, of Christ's life and therefore all of these teachings and laws and everything of all of the scriptures comes together at his point, at his life, excuse me, and his life obviously can be found in a rather profound way in the sacrifice of the Mass. Likewise, in the Mass, the people are fed, first from the ambo, and secondly, from the altar. We hear and hopefully take to heart these inspired words before we participate in the heavenly banquet and the perfect sacrifice of Christ, who is truly made present in body, blood, soul, and divinity. So much of the Mass, the perfect act of worship of the gratitude to God is brought to life through the events and persons that we find in sacred scripture. Throughout the Old Testament and also throughout the New Testament, we can find events that will help us to live out the Mass well, that will help us to better understand the significance of the Mass. And in the New Testament, we certainly find how important the Mass is with all of the times that they're breaking bread, with all of the times uh, that they need strength in order to em embrace and endure some kind of punishment or persecution or imprisonment, as well as to continue to spread the gospel, to continue uh, that the kingdom of God be made here on earth to continue this pilgrimage towards heaven. And we see that their strength is the mass, the most holy heavenly bread that has come down from heaven. Jesus Christ, his flesh, this is our salvation. And so we should continue to cherish the mass with everything that we are. The mass is the living out of the sacred words and truths found in scripture. By the mass, we receive what is necessary to fulfill the commandments and live this life in a most virtuous and most holy way. May God bless you. May the Blessed Virgin, Our Lady of Fatima, strengthen you and protect you and help you to love the Mass. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.